Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the LawCast. This time, we're going back to cover Hulk Hogan versus Ric Flair in a barbed wire, by God, steel cage match. It's uncensored 1999. Kyush, for a guy who hates hardcore wrestling, isn't it strange how many death matches Ric Flair has had over the years? And how good he is at it? Like, yeah. this is not a particularly good example of that, but, like... He's always been willing to do it in a way that most people who hate them never aren't never is. The number of times he's just been like, "What? You want me to fall off a ladder into some barbed wire? Fuck it. I guess this is what I'm doing today." Like when I say the main event of this show is Hulk Hogan versus Ric Flair in a barbed wire steel cage first blood retirement match. I'm not kidding. A barbed wire steel cage retirement match. Whether if Ric Flair wins, he's president for life. For life. Yeah, really loading up the gimmicks there. And it's for the world title. This, this is a silly amount of shit to put into it, one match, right? It could. I, I think it should have just been a barbed wire cage match. You could have even done, maybe this, this probably wouldn't have been the right, you could have even, even done non-title because it's unsanctioned and Flair just wants to kill Hogan. But barbed wire steel cage for the title, like, that sells me, like, Hogan and Flair in a barbed wire cage. I was buying this shit. And the funny thing is, like, the barbed wire in this cage is only around the top. And it's not like these two old fucks were climbing out of this thing anyway. To keep people out. There's no doors and there's barbed wire at the top. So nobody's getting into this cage. They're going to settle it one-on-one like men. But the best part is, is just that, like, just the idea of these two old fucks, the greatest of all time, wrestling in a barbed wire death match. Yeah. Kicks ass. So we're coming off Super Brawl where Hogan retained the world title over Flair after his son David turned on him and joined the NWO. We've got a really short build to this one. They only had three weeks between pay-per-views. I don't know if that's arena availability or it might be that they just wanted to try to get some distance from WrestleMania, which was on March 28th and was going to do a monster buy rate, but they end up with a real quick turnaround for this one. I mean, it kind of shows because so much of the build to this feels either rushed or non-existent or just basically like sold out part two. Yeah, they just with three weeks, there was only so much they could do. So you end up with some cold matches and some rematches is kind of the formula we get here. And there, there's still potential for this show. Like, I, I was looking at the card, which I rarely do before watching these shows, and, like, looking at it up and down, like, there's not a match on this show with two extremely notable <laughs> exceptions sure. that couldn't be good in theory. That doesn't mean that they are, but it's not a bad card. No, th- but this show actually got a good reception at the time. I was looking at the Wrestling Observer poll. It was, like, 78% thumbs up or something like that. Which means they must have really liked most of it. Because, again, like, once we get to the main event, which is one of the weirdest, most baffling ends to a show I've ever seen. It's a very strange match. Yeah, we're going to get there. But, like, if that had been good, I would remember this as a really good show, probably. But just with that as the last taste in my mouth, it's like, what the fuck was this? So the Nitro after Super Brawl was Monday, February the 22nd at the Arco Arena in Sacramento. 
They sold the place out, over 13,000 people in attendance and a $220,000 gate. Pretty strong numbers for Sacramento. About on par. Better than the Kings were doing at this time, because this is before the Kings have gotten good. It, is it weird that, like, I feel like no major wrestling company has ever made, like, California, like, a big base of their operations? Does that make sense? Like, Yeah, I think it's just hard. There's a couple things. It's hard to get out there. The timing of the shows is awkward because – so Nitro starts at 8 p.m. on the East Coast, so you have to start the show at 5 p.m., California time. Um, I was listening to Jericho did an episode of his podcast recently with the guy who does AEW's live, the head of their live events division. And he had a lot of really interesting insight. And one of them was when he was talking about why it took him so long to book California. It was, he said they didn't know if they could draw out there and the logistics of it are tricky because you have to start the shows at 5 PM local time. And that's the thing is that because of the logistics, people don't really try so there's just sort of the stigma about California, like, oh, we may draw there, we may not. It's hard to say. But, like, it's weird because if I were going to start up, like, a new major wrestling promotion, like, Tony Khan chose, obviously it was mostly, like, Jacksonville, but, like, he chose, like, Chicago as, like, yeah. the heart home of that company. Makes total sense. But also, like, the most people in this country are in California, and no one ever tries to promote wrestling there. You have so many big markets in California. Like, like pro wrestling people don't even think about people don't even think about San Jose and Anaheim, but those are really big cities. Bakerfield, Bakersfield is a big city. I mean, you could run like a twenty thousand seat arena like every single month for a year and never leave California. Like, yeah. it's crazy. So this week they changed up the format of the show a little bit by letting the announcers quote unquote see the backstage segments. Some of them, not all of them. It's confusing. I feel like if they're in black and white, the way it works is if they're now if they're in black and white, I think the announcers aren't seeing them. So it's basically the NWO shit. I, I kind of almost like the idea of like NWO segments aren't allowed to be seen because they don't want the announcers seeing their shit. Yeah. yeah, they didn't they didn't pay the rights fee to see that. Um, on this show, Booker T beat Bret Hart in a near 18-minute match to become the number one contender to the U.S. title. Very good match. Huge win for Booker. Kudos to Bret for doing the job to him. Um, they redid the SummerSlam 92 finish here. Bret went for the sunset flip. Booker hooked the legs and sat down on him. Always love that finish. Not only did Brett put him over, but he put him over with one of his most iconic wins yep. of all, most iconic finishes of all time, which means he was really trying to put him over. And it, to their credit, it seems like Nash understands we got to push Booker, man, because all of a sudden he's got rockets behind him. I can guarantee you the push and pull there was Hogan didn't like Booker for because he was reasons that should be apparent. Yeah. As we've established, Hulk Hogan is all for pushing anybody who could never replace him. So, like, monsters, push him. Heels, push him. Charismatic baby faces, fuck those guys. Oh, and black guys. And black guys, yeah. That's something we shouldn't overlook here. Hogan, he called Hogan the N-word one time four years before this, and Hogan yeah, never well, forgot it. Yeah, well, how many it. times did Hogan call him the N-word? The yeah, I wasn't going to say that, but you're right. Rey Mysterio. Scored the upset of the century by beating Kevin Nash. Nash 
went to put him up for the jackknife. Mysterio punched him in the head a bunch of times until Nash fell back and Mysterio hooked his legs to pin him. Nash puts over the smallest guy on the roster. This is always framed as there's some reason this was not a good thing. Look, this is Kevin Nash leading by example. He did a meeting with everybody where he said everybody needs to do jobs, and then he goes out and puts over Rey Mysterio. And the way this was framed at the time and in, like, Death of WCW and all this shit yeah. is like, oh, he thought that that made a big fucking difference. It wasn't even, like, a real clean pinfall. Shut the fuck up. This Whatever is a guy who's five foot two. This is a gigantic career-making win yes. for Rey Mysterio. It is. The problem with the whole Rey Mysterio thing is if Lex had never gotten hurt, he would have gotten to beat Lex Luger. That would and like that would have been, but he would have gotten to beat him like clean on pay per view. It would have been like a big, big win. The problem here is that Mysterio can't beat Nash twice. Like it's Nash. Like he's one of like your top three guys. It's not gonna happen. It's honestly, it's crazy that he put him over. It's insane that a guy of Nash's size and stature and power in the company puts Rey Mysterio over clean in front of God. God knows how many people were watching. Six million people, eight eight million people. I don't even remember what the rating points translate to at this point. And the point that he's trying to prove and that I think it's fair that he does say that he does prove it is that it doesn't fucking matter if you take losses, you marks. It doesn't, losses don't matter. If Muhammad Ali could lose, then how can these fake wrestlers not lose? Exactly. It's Michael Jordan can lose. John Elway could lose. Everybody loses in real sports. Only in fake sports can, is somebody afraid to lose. Yeah, so, I mean, I would have thought that that would have given him some credibility. Though, backstage at that point, I'm not sure anybody could have had any credibility. No. Uh, they spent the night building to a face-to-face confrontation between the Flares, but instead we got a really long NWO parody. Yeah. I, I think... Hogan's impersonation Flair was funny, and Nash doing Arn Anderson... For whatever reason, Nash doing Arn Anderson is always brilliant. I mean, aside from that one time where he literally made Arn Anderson almost sue the company. <laughs> or he just... buried him for being a drunk. Yeah. Yep. You're a drunk cripple. Uh... <laughs> he did it again here. Arn yeah. <laughs> That's a funny thing. I don't think Arn was upset about that. I think people were upset on Arn's behalf about it. Yes. I think you're right about that. Honestly... Do you feel like the boys were watching while they did this segment and everyone's like cracking the fuck up? Probably. It was pretty funny. It just, you know, it's kind of, it's a pretty lame ending to the show. Like, oh my. I was, for it was this to be the show yeah. ender? Gross. I was, inter- I was interested. It should have probably ended with either Booker over Brett or Ray over Nash. It should have ended with Ray over Nash, honestly. Yeah. What I think. Like that's like a perfect shock ending. Uh, they did a 4.73 rating, which is pretty good. That's back to you know the normal range after they had done a really low 3.9 the week before. 
with these ratings numbers, I do I'd be curious what the margin of error on these things is, because my understanding of how this worked back then is it was based on sampling. I don't remember. I don't know. Did uh, Nielsen call people the next day and ask them what they were watching on TV to try to figure it But it's based on sampling, so there's a margin of error in there. So when I see they went from a 3.9 one week to a 4.7 the next week, I I have a hard time believing that there was actually a difference of 1.5 million people watching the show or whatever that translates to from week to week. So what they would do is, so they would send packets like randomly to people's houses. And then those people would be like, yeah, I'd like to be contacted about my television watching habits later on. And then they'd call like 100,000 people and then they just extrapolate from that to see what everyone in the world was watching. Yeah, so it's like, I mean, it's like a poll for a political campaign. It's got, you know, the same limitations, but, you know, sampling works when done right. It's legitimate. But yeah, you know, you have to take these numbers. There's a margin of error in there. Yeah, but when people freak out about like a point, point ten, one tenth of a point, two tenths of a point, three tenths of a point, I don't think the ratings are that accurate. No, but if you call five hundred thousand people and they yeah. all, and like a hundred thousand say they were watching Nitro, then a bunch of fucking people were watching Nitro. That's basically how ratings work. Yeah, it's not an exact science. I still get packets to this day because I was a Nielsen home for a while. Really? Yes. I didn't think it still worked that way. I thought they could track like from people's cable boxes now what they actually watch. But they, they might do, they probably do some combination. Yeah, I think they do both ways now because yeah, there are people who don't have cable boxes, especially now that they have smart TVs again. There's not necessarily the same way of tracking them as before. Yeah, so, I, fi- I finally cut the cord. I'm Hulu now. Yeah, unfortunately, I stopped being a Nielsen home when I had to tell him, like, hey, man, I haven't watched live television that wasn't an illegal stream in a very long time. (laughs) Oh, man. So then March 1st, Nitro, the next week, they're in Chapel Hill, North Carolina, at the Dean Dome on the campus of the University of North Carolina. I love from this era how often both the WWF and WCW would run college towns. I loved the energy they would get from these places. Especially for WCW, which like their exact target market is 18 to 22 year old dudes. And that's exactly what you get. It's like a frat party in the nitro. Rowdy, rowdy crowds. They're just packed with college students. And even the WWF, in uh, 1999, the WWF, right around this time, it would have been ran a show on the campus of Michigan State University. They were both doing a lot of college towns. They did uh, the WWF would run state. They ran Penn State University. Like yep. they don't really do this anymore. I remember, like in the mid thousands, they went back to starting to do this. And I don't know if that's just because their attendances were starting to drop or whatever. Yeah. But like, and I feel like it hasn't been normal since then. I don't know why. No, but huge crowd, 18,000, sold out, hanging from the rafters, $385,000 gate, $209,000 in merchandise sales. It's funny the rap on – the rap is always that WCW was dead in the Carolinas after Fall Brawl 97. I feel like this disproves that. 
There's a lot of narrative. At the end of this, we should just go through like a list of narratives <laughs> about this all time. The narratives, yeah. Like the entire book, Death of WCW, is just so full of absolute bullshit that doesn't make well, any sense and doesn't track with because reality. They didn't do any re. They didn't do any original. Maybe I'm wrong, but I don't think they did one bit of original research for that book. And there's a lot of wrestling, like quote unquote, books like this that literally the person writing it just reads the wrestling observer and listens to shoot interviews, which to be fair is how we prepare for these shows, but we're not charging people for this. Yes, exactly. And honestly, you do do some research. Like you've, we've like read books and like gone deep down deeper. It just generally seems like what they're doing is being like, everybody knows yeah. that the finger poke of doom is what destroyed w no shut the fuck that's what you and your in it's like lazy. your buddies on the forums think that's so fucking stupid isn't it much more interesting to try to fit to explore and think for yourself and try to figure out what actually happened even yeah. if it goes against your preconceived notions which as we found all the time happens a lot on the, these shows when we revisit things turns out we feel differently about them now there are so many things. We've been doing this podcast for like six years now. And like there have been so many things that I thought firmly as a wrestling viewer and like having watched wrestling for years and years and years and just doing this podcast has shown me that I'm wrong about hundreds of things. It's ridiculous. You have to keep learning new stuff. So this Nitro, Rey Mysterio beat Bam Bam Bigelow, continuing his streak of killing giants. Yeah, what a fucking king. Also, I know that, like, Ray with his mask off isn't nearly as marketable as Ray with his mask on. It's working, but, like, though. Ray in the camo with the hip-hop entrance, like, he's over yeah. now. Like It's the so different. It's so different. Like, um, only he and Conan and the Wolfpack, with their shitty rap, are the only ones who get hip-hop anything. <laughs> yeah, I, I think his WWE presentation kind of nailed it, where he had the pants and the mask back, and the hip-hop entrance. Basically, it's just it's just this, but with the mask back on, which is what he should have been allowed to do in the first place, probably. And, like, I know they're going to put him in the filthy animals later on, and I feel like that, that's a mistake, because he kind of, he's so small that he, he looks, looks like out of a, place. He looks like their little brother, yeah. Right. As a singles, though, like, even when he's up against Nash, then it's David versus Goliath. It's not like, oh, here's my dorky kid brother, he's going to fight Kevin Nash, huh? <laughs> uh, Bret Hart and Chris Benoit had a great 15-minute match that ended in a DQ after Bret refused to break the sharpshooter while Benoit was in the ropes. Feels like they're just letting Bret work with who he wants to at this point. I feel like the only reason Bret hasn't already retired is he's just like, I just want to <laughs> yeah. work with Benoit as many times as possible. Please have some more matches with Benoit, maybe. And he, and he has an idea. He has something he wants to do with Goldberg in Toronto that we'll talk about next week. One of my favorite segments in wrestling history. Unbelievably excited to talk about that. Uh, Flair did a promo addressing the situation with his son. He just kind of totally blew off this. Like He was just like, yeah, I don't care that David turned on me. That doesn't matter. What matters is I want to fight Hogan again. I'm going to beat him and win the title. That's the only thing I care about. He said he was going to fight Hogan at Uncensored in a cage with no doors with barbed wire at the top. Uh, this is the beginning of Flair's heel turn because he just <laughs> he outs himself for being a terrible father and that it, you know, he deserved to have David turn on him because he's a bad person and a bad father. 
the idea that like, well, we got to come up with some reasonable reason why he could still be the heel, even though David Blair turned on his famous dad. So we got to make him even worse yeah. than David is. Man, I don't know. Because now David Flair's like a lame duck baby face, kind of. <laughs> That's the thing. It's, David Flair's super hateable because he's, you know, this nepotism baby who's hooking up with the hottest woman in the world because she's being paid to do it by Hulk Hogan. That's pretty hateable. But yeah, in this, they make him sympathetic. I don't know where it's supposed to go. It's impossible. There, there's... The only thing of value he has to offer is this, like, Dominic Mysterio nepotism shit where you'd be like, fuck this dude for getting these opportunities. Anything else he's not prepared for. And not much else really happened on that Nitro. Thunder on March 4th. I was just talking about how they weren't dead in the Carolinas. This was a disaster. This was in Winston-Salem, campus of Wake Forest University, they drew 4,000 people in a 15,000-seat building. The problem is, this is the same market. Chapel Hill and Winston-Salem, I think they're like 30 minutes from each other. They're not. It's not a big enough market to be running two shows in two nights right back-to-back. Back. Right. Yeah. That, that I think that I think is the mistake. Like you, and if, given the choice, most people are not going to go to both shows. And given the choice, everybody's going to go to Nitro. Oh yeah, like wouldn't you? Like that's Nitro's the, place the real to be. show. Yeah. Like we've covered that so many times since we've been doing this season already. But like genuinely, these pay per views are kind of eh, and Thunder's dumb, and Saturday Night's pointless. Nitro kicks ass. Nitro fucking rules it's the these, best television show i've ever seen this is the biggest party in the world every single one of these nitros one of my favorite things about nitro is you know how wwe crowds even like attitude era wwe crowds always seem like they're like well behaved yeah like they always seem like <laughs> not like nitro going crowds nitro crowds no two people are even moving in the same direction if you look yeah. at the crowd like every person's just a drunk individual having their own party constant fights and yet the crowds are red hot they're into the shows and they'll even they'll put a cold match out there between two guys who aren't over but if the guys have a good match the crowd will get into it that's why that that's the only atmosphere that the cruiserweights really could have ever gotten us over yeah. if they did because like none of them had any heat whatsoever but people would be like yeah it's a fucking flip yeah. yeah i mean there's these shows where they put like they'll put out a match. They're like Jerry Flynn versus Mike Enos, and the crowd will actually give it a chance. And they'll start like the guys will do good work, and the crowd will start to get into it. It's fun. And something I love about that is I bet you it's because aside from like Hogan and Flair, they don't know who any of these fucking guys are anyway. <laughs> so maybe Jerry yeah, Flynn's they, a big they star. Just Jerry Flynn and Mike Enos are stars. Yeah. Oh, Nitro Marche. A night that would live in infamy. This is the night in which there was no wrestling in the first hour. Not one match. I just picture some redneck hillbilly being like, hey, you got any wrestling matches? You got any of them? Could we get some wrestling matches? No, no wrestling matches. Now, this has been one of the most universally panned things online. It's the it's like the single bullet they used to put into Kevin Nash that like he's the shittiest booker of all time. Where he was like, Oh, you guys want some wrestling, huh? How about zero wrestling motherfuckers? 
I know what you're going to say. I know what you expect me to say. I know I'm supposed to bury this. I got to admit, I kind of liked it. I didn't hate it. I thought these were interesting segments. Now, and here's one thing to make clear. They put on mat. They put on dark matches in the building during the first hour, so the crowd was seeing wrestling. They weren't si- they weren't having to sit in their seats and watch endless backstage segments. That would have been a disaster. Yeah, they got the crowd four or five dark matches instead. Because the crowd doesn't get to see the backstage segments at all. So for that whole hour, like they're getting two separate shows basically. And there's something you could do with that where they probably should. I mean, TNA or T TNT. Turner wants more WCW content. You could have just filmed those matches and then put them on a different night. Yeah, absolutely. That actually would have saved some Saturday money. Night that, is. that could be, I was just going to say that could replace Saturday night. You could tape that hour of matches and then, you know, tape a couple more after Nitro ends and get yourself to a two hour show. And it would be in front of a big ass crowd in a full arena instead of, you know, in front of 2000 people in Columbus, Georgia, like Saturday night was. There's also a, a big difference between how people treat like B matches that don't matter if it's before the big show. Yeah. And then if it's after, like if you do a WCW style, like two Oh five live, like, Oh man, we watched SmackDown. That was pretty fun. Oh, now we got to stay for this. And then everybody leaves. <laughs> yeah. When I went to that nitro in 1998, that was when the riot started was during the fourth hour of matches they tried to put on. Uh, yep. That makes sense. <laughs> Man, like I said, these crowds were rowdy. Anyway, the first hour here. Here's what we got. A long replay of a backstage segment with Flair and Arn from Thunder, where Arn tried to talk some sense into Flair and, you know, told him he needed to put his family first and Flair blew him off. Um, Clips of a Nitro party. And then profiles of the Nitro girls. This is interesting how they're trying to make the Nitro girls um, like give them kind of characters. It's an interesting idea. I just don't see where it's going to go. Shouldn't you, if you're going to do, couldn't we do some profiles of some of the wrestlers who don't get a lot of time instead? Well, around this time, they kind of make the decision that like, we're going to make these Nitro girls personalities. Cause what we have is a ton of extremely hot women just kind of yeah. here. And like, yeah, summer hits and summer misses because by the time 2000 rolls around they're all managers or they've washed out of the company right yeah i was gonna say you can make them managers you could put them in relationships with some of the male wrestlers there's things you can do to give them storylines and i'm sure the boys but are backstage they're, like they're, they're not up, wrestlers like, that one's my manager uh yeah booker t's like yo give me charmel <laughs> A really interesting sit-down interview with Hogan where he buried Flair for being a bad father who didn't care about his son. This was some interesting stuff. Kind of Hogan doing like half kayfabe here where he's like, you know, I play a villain on TV. I do a lot of bad things. I'm here to make money, but my family is what matters to me. If my son turned on me, I'd retire from wrestling because my family matters more. Ric Flair doesn't care about his family. He only cares about being world champion and he cares about backstage power, which is why he wants to be president. This is interesting. I thought this was very different. Yeah. Two things about this are technically Hogan's not wrong about any of this in real life nope. or in kayfabe, nope. except for the part where he said that he would do anything with his son. Cause he's also a terrible father. Yeah. True. He was very supportive of his son, probably more so than he should have been. 
Yeah, he's not a terrible father because he's a neglectful dad like Flair is. That's a different kind of bad. He's the kind of bad dad who drag races with his son until he gets yeah. into horrible accidents that kill people. Uh, then they showed Hogan and Nash watching Flair's interview from the previous week and making fun of him. Oh, man. Then they showed Scott Steiner and Buff Bagwell getting pulled over and made to be police officers as a punishment. I think this is literally like a Keystone <laughs> Cops segment from like the this 50s. But this is amazing television. Like, if you... If you said, what's going to be great TV, Scott Steiner has to become a, an active policeman. Yeah. <laughs> Fuck yes. Send him to the Academy. You could get weeks of comedy out of that. Hogan and Nash went to a gun range to meet up with Tori and then agreed to have dinner later. And then they just did. <laughs> and then they have dinner. Then yeah, they just, just had dinner. <laughs> sitting in an Italian restaurant having dinner for 15 minutes. Uh, they come up with a new plan for messing with Flair. It turns out they've got an older woman named Mrs. Robinson who they're going to pay $20,000 to seduce David. Why does he need to be seduced by a different woman now? Can't yeah, why Tori again? <laughs> yeah, like Tori's got him wrapped around his finger, her finger. I, hmm, that's a good <laughs> was question. This, was this some woman Nash was banging? No, because he was happily married at this point, Steve. Of course he would never. I just, I love the idea of them being like, well, we don't need to do this, but fuck David Flair. It'll be funny. Finally, at this point, they did the opening of the show. This is after 37 minutes of content without commercials. So we're probably talking 45 minutes with commercials. Then Mean Gene did an interview in the ring with... David Flair and Tori and Goldberg. Uh, Goldberg went to beat up David Flair. Ric Flair ran out to stop him. And Goldberg press slammed him. And that set up Goldberg versus Flair as the main event. Doesn't it feel like Goldberg's such an afterthought on these shows? <laughs> he really is. Yeah. Because these shouldn't he just seems to have lost. He seems to have just gotten distracted, lost interest in getting revenge on the NWO. I also want to point out, I'm not sure that this is something that people have really taken to heart, but like the entire premise of Goldberg losing the title was that we yep. were going to find some way, shape or form to get the title back on him. That was going to be the climax of whatever, whatever, whatever of like five different story arcs. He nope. never gets that belt back. Fifteen other people get the title instead. Like literally until the end of WCW, he never sniffs that belt again. Is that right? He never wins it again. That is insane. I didn't realize that everybody in the – I think I was the WCW yes. champion in 2000. I think I, like, won a raffle or something and got to run with the belt for a week. Literally, I was, like, doing, like, a belt lineage <laughs> trivia thing, and we went through them all, and I'm like – It's insane. That's fucking crazy. You you yeah. don't even put him on him as, like, an emergency thing? You would have thought David Arquette got the belt, but Goldberg couldn't? Jeff Jarrett got it five times in Jeff four months. Fucking Jarrett. Christ. They almost put it on Tank Abbott, but we don't got room for Goldberg. So they're trying something different with the format here. I don't know what the right format. I don't know how to do this three hour show. I think it's probably a mistake. I think you 
So the 8 p.m. hour is your unopposed hour. I think you've got to try to hook people with big stuff in that hour. So doing this much out of like, you know, backstage segments, no action is probably a mistake. The thing I find interesting is TNA did it. TNA ended up when did that reaction show air? Was that like the hour after Impact? Yeah, it was, was the hour right after. It came right on the heels of Impact. Like sometimes the main event would even bleed into reaction. Yeah. That's interesting. That show did pretty good ratings and was super cheap for them to produce. So, again, if you're trying to make a little more money, doing a show that's like WCW backstage or whatever is an interesting idea. I'll be honest. Like, I like the idea of doing, like, a pre-show. Like, you have an unopposed hour, right? And, yeah. like, may, I don't wouldn't do it like WWE where it's, like, this unbelievably stale format pre-game show. But you could, like, throw back to the announcers a couple of times and be like, we have a gigantic match at the top of the hour. At the 9 o'clock hour, five minutes before Raw starts, we're going to put in the ring, like, Kevin Nash versus Rey Mysterio. And it's going to be a fucking hot match. And then you spend an hour building to that and towards the future main event. And you can can interview both Rey and Nash. And just, it's a build. And I think you can sprinkle some. I mean, do you sprinkle in some matches, too? I don't know. I'm not even sure that I would. I, I would honestly, because what I would do is I would use that hour to tape all the Saturday night matches and then just do yeah. backstage segments otherwise. In between in between the matches, we go to the announcers. And yeah, you could even see, like, matches going on in the background of, That's like, the announcers. so interesting, because I'd be like, oh, what's going on back there? Who's in the ring? Oh, shit, is that Booker T? Oh, I got to see that. Got to find out on Saturday night, baby. Yeah. Like, you can watch, uh, like, the major players arrive for that night. Like, I, I just think that there's so much you could do with that. Yeah. They added a stipulation to the Flair Hogan match that Flair would get to run WCW permanently if he won, but he would have to retire if he lost. I hate when they do these, per, like, forever stipulations because they're a fucking Nothing's joke. forever. <laughs> I think he ends up running WCW for. A month after that, I don't remember. I think he gets. We're gonna cover. I think he gets put in an insane asylum or something. That literally, that stupid. That sounds right. Yeah. It's also a first blood match, but they weren't allowed to promote that on TV. No talking about blood. Which really presses the question: Then why do a first blood match at all? What is the point? Yeah. Why? I don't know. Flair and Goldberg went to a no contest in the main event after interference from the NWO. Um, Rock crushed Nitro in the ratings this night, 6.4 to 4.4. The main event of Raw was Steve Austin versus The Big Show, and that drew something like a 7.5 rating against Flair Goldberg doing a 3.7, so they literally doubled him up. On the other hand, that 4.4 rating is just kind of in line with what they've been doing. Yeah, I mean, you're absolutely right. And there's nothing wrong with any of this, really. Yeah. The show drew 10,800 people, $285,000 gate, 1,800 short of a sellout. Feels like the first show in a, in a non-stadium they hadn't sold, that didn't sell out in a while. I feel that feels probably more ominous than it really should, but it does yeah. feel like a little like, hmm. Yeah. That's not great. I don't remember where this show was. I think it was in Boston. I think this, was, yeah, I think this was up in Boston. Maybe, no, maybe, I think it was Providence. I think it was like Rhode Island, Providence, 
somewhere that's not a big it's not a big WCW town. That's a WWF town. Yeah, you're in the Northeast, man. That's not a great place to be running pay per views. Um, the show and the ratings gap between Raw and Nitro led Meltzer to declare that the Monday Night Wars were over, and he's not wrong. There at this point, it's pretty inconceivable they're going to beat Raw anytime in the near future. And even if they did, it's not like like the Monday Night Wars can spark again. It doesn't have to be over forever. But obviously right yeah. now, yeah, it's done. In the middle of all this, Bischoff went on vacation to France with his family. Not going to blast him for that. Like He's been working insanely hard for years and years, and he wanted to take his daughter to Paris. I don't know. There's, the thing with wrestling is there's no good time for it because there's no off season. Yeah, there's this thing where like people in wrestling get buried anytime they take any sort of mental health anytime. break or anything like that. Yeah. And it's like this is the most toxic like capitalist society shit where like you can't step away for like a fucking week just to like take catch your breath. You just have to be worn down by the wheel forever. Yeah. Like he's been I mean he's been running this company since like 93 94 and in that time I don't know if he'd ever gone on vacation. I doubt it. He'd gone to Japan for work. I, I mean, like, his vacations are basically, like, he'd get to go cool places when they would run shows there, and he would take his family with him, but he'd be working the whole time. Yeah. Not exactly what you think of. This company, like, so many people on, like, message boards and stuff over the years buried them because, like, they would pay people enough or, like, oh, people my God, would go that's on the vacations. Worst fucking thing that, like, yeah, Bischoff's such a mark because he paid people. Like, why do we not want wrestlers to get paid? Why, yes. why are we mad that wrestler that like, oh, so-and-so made 185000 Why are we upset about that? Isn't that a good thing that he paid guys real real living wages? The other thing is when we see those, number, those numbers, we need to take into account half of that goes to taxes because they are independent contractors and have to pay self-employment tax. And then they have to pay their road expenses. Huge chunk of that is out the door before we even talk about having to pay their mortgage, having to feed and clothe their families. Yeah. The only real advantage of the guaranteed salaries was a weekly paycheck instead that was of what, great. whatever yeah. Vince feels like giving you from show to show. Yeah. But yeah, people, it's like just the shittiest thing that people are like, oh yeah, what a joke. WCW overpaid these guys so much. Why are we mad about that? It's just such an obvious case of, like, the people doing the reporting were, like, influenced by the old-timers being like, you can't pay them guaranteed wages. They'll get comfortable and take sick days and shit. Oh, my God. We can't have that. Can't have no. that. And on just a core level, WCW just paid people better than the WWF did. They just paid a higher percentage of their revenue to the wrestlers, which is a good thing. They were The wrestlers were still underpaid. They were paid way worse than compa- professional athletes comparably, comparably were. Lower percentage of you know wrestling companies' revenue goes to payroll than the NBA, the NFL, the NHL, Major League Baseball does. Yeah, not to get on the soapbox, but that's still true today. Oh, we're talking I'm about so- a billion-dollar company that like maybe one wrestler's making ten million a year, and everyone yep. else is making maybe one, if that. The, the revenue the WWE produces in a year has gone from like two hundred million dollars at this point to $1.3 billion a year now, wrestler salaries have not risen commensurately. Yeah, I mean, Roman Reigns' has. But unless you get, like, some kind of special leverage, nothing ever changes. 
Yeah, everybody else, they're making more, but not that much more. And they're still paying for the, My understanding is I think they're still paying for their own hotels, their own rental cars. Yeesh. It's crazy. Anyway, and one sad and kind of serious story before the lightning round. I didn't want to put this in there. Uh, Rick Wilson, who wrestled as the renegade, uh, killed himself. He was only 33 he had been let go by WCW a couple months prior and apparently just did not handle it well. Like, really sad. I don't, like, I'm sure, like, Bischoff, I'd feel bad if I was Bischoff. I don't think he did anything wrong letting the guy go. He wasn't a good wrestler, unfortunately. He was put in a really terrible position when they made people think it was going to be the ultimate warrior and instead it was him. Yep. Um, and sort of a weird, weird tribute to him. If you go on the WWE or on Peacock and pull up WCW Uncensored, the homepage picture for that includes the Renegade. Yeah, because he debuted at the original Uncensored in 1995. That was when they were promoting uh, Hogan's partner was going to be the ultimate surprise. Yeah. So while that was a huge bummer for everyone involved, at least he's remembered to this day. Yeah. Just yeah, just a bummer. Like. Yeah. <sighs> Wrestling's a tough business. It really it is. Seems like nobody. It just seems nobody seems to know the new have known the guy very well. Sounds like he was just really quiet and kept to himself. He was here for like four years. Yeah, and made years. no friends. No, that's rough. Wrestling's a tough business, especially uh, this locker room. Like nobody was friends in this locker room. Oh, they were all fucking sharks. This may be the locker room with the most political sharks in history. I don't know. O2 WWF was pretty bad, too. It's funny. Don't you feel like this is like the prequel to O2 WWF that we just covered in so oh, yeah. many ways? Because a lot of those do, these guys come into that locker room with this being oh, the yeah. last locker room they were in. So they bring it with them. Hogan, Flair, Bischoff, Hall, Nash, so many of the same main characters in that, you know, 202 WWE season we did. And the only one who changes is Hogan, who's suddenly like, fuck it, I'll do jobs, brother. I'm here to be everybody's <laughs> just because friend. He's just Mr. Nice Guy. Yeah, he's got nothing left to worry about. This is my retirement <laughs> tour, brother. Until he quits because he's unhappy with his money. I mean, that's just normal. He's the only, yeah, he's the only person in the industry who knows what he's worth. Yeah. All right. Are you ready for the lightning round? Hell yeah. It was reported that there was consideration to doing a film based on the Montreal screw job. Who are you casting in this one? Ooh. All right. All right. All right. Uh, so the most important casting here it's is 1990, Vince. It's 1999. Uh, how about Clint Eastwood as Vince? Um, I don't Too know. Top? That's a, Al Pacino as Vince. Al Pacino at the time is pretty much perfect, I think. Yeah. That's like a good heat one. Like era, like. Yeah. You Coked out crazy yourself. Al Pacino. Yeah. That's pretty good. Brett. I'm thinking Jean-Claude Van Damme is Shawn Michaels. Oh, that's awesome, because he's such a dickhead. Yeah. Who plays Brett? Get fucking Stallone in there. At <laughs> <laughs> the right height. <sighs> mean the Gene! Is the best it was, the best it ever will be. Mean Gene, start introducing interviews by saying that we're in the shank of the evening. 
what the fuck does that mean? I Googled it. It's like an old-timey saying for the best part of the night. Like, you know, your grandpa might have said something. Like, somebody would get come to the house and be like, oh, we're in the shank of the evening now. So, like, basically, like, the lamb shank of the evening? Like, we've got to I the guess. good part of the meat? Yeah, we're in the, we're in the best part of the evening. It's really weird. It's really it's, old-timey. What an God, old man. It. I love Mean Gene, though. I think he adds so much to these shows. Just every time they throw to him, and it's just like, we could be watching some, like, Todd Pettengill motherfucker right here instead, and instead it's Gene, and he's just adding so much. The Walter Cronkite of pro wrestling. Here's what he does that no other, really, like, I feel like no interviewer does today, is he helps the guy tell the story in their promo. If yes. they're not hitting their points, he'll jump in and make it for them. On this show, when they throw to Gene, Heenan clearly forgot to say something in the opening. So he, so Mean Gene just immediately jumps in and it's just like, yep, and I bet you the brain would agree that this is yeah. an important night for, for the prestige of Ric Flair's career. Yeah, he'll be like, if the guy didn't hit his line, he'll be like, you know, you said something to me earlier about blah, 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 and that'll remind the guy what he was supposed to say. Yeah. Nobody does this today. Today, they're just a microphone stand. But also, like, I don't think the announcers are allowed to read the interviews the other guys are going to do, but they should, because that's how scripts work. Yeah. Now, today, then, uh, to be fair, I don't think it's that people aren't this talented. I think it's that they're not, you know, empowered to do this anymore. Yeah, Gene got free reign. This was his domain. No one else gets that kind of thing. Maybe Renee did when she was doing it because she was so good. I think in AEW, Renee does. Yeah. Because she basically she's, she's she's the best out there right now. She's the closest to Gene we've ever had. In the Observer, Meltzer referred to Juventud Guerrera as the best wrestler in the United States and Billy Kidman as a can't-miss superstar. Wow. I think my eyes are stuck in my head. I just rolled them so hard. Now, Hoovy is a very good wrestler. Yeah. Um, okay, maybe. He ain't Kidman the best is, in the Kidman United is not States. A, Kidman is not a can't-miss superstar. Kidman is not a superstar. Yeah, this is... Look, the only Kidman who hasn't had a fucking shower or bath in six months is not a star. I can't go and watch it with 1998 eyes. I wish that I could so that I could say definitively what I know in my heart to be true, which is that he wouldn't have passed the Q Scouts test then and he damn sure doesn't now. Billy Kidman, who's five foot eight with his greasy long hair and his tank top and his jean shorts is not a star. Although, ironically, as much as Bischoff like buried this on his podcast when it was brought up to him, they put Kidman over Hulk Hogan the year after this. Maybe that was just Russo's idea. I don't know. But like. And also, nothing really changes about Billy Kidman. He can't cut a fucking promo. No. He wears the same outfit his whole WCW career. Like he His looks... matches are good, but I don't think he's a great wrestler. I think he's no. athletic. He has a, you know, a cool finisher that he nearly kills people with. Every single time you see Billy Kidman on a pay-per-view, that's a time you're not seeing Rey Mysterio, and yeah. that should make you upset. There was backstage controversy when word got out that Kevin Nash had called Chris Benoit Dean Malenko vanilla midgets. In Nash's defense, he's right. This has stuck, again, as another blow in, like, Kevin Nash's—again, so much of what you guys think about Kevin Nash is, like— 
perpetrated by these wrestling form weirdos from the time that just had a thing just had a thing about him because he's big lazy because he left their beloved wwf for a guaranteed paycheck because he wanted to know he could provide a good life for his family that's what makes him a bad guy because he's not a mark and like that bothers them everybody i know has a guaranteed paycheck at the job they work it's weird If, if i didn't i wouldn't be working that fucking job that's for sure it's just it's so funny to me but like you just got to remember that when you hear those things so yeah if he called them vanilla midgets which does sound like some kind of quip that he would throw I mean, he out he did he's done it in shoot interviews too but he stands by it and you know what as steve said they fucking are vanilla midgets guys they wrestle kurt hennig and barry windham on the show and they look like they're kids Malenko in particular is so tiny and really lacks personality. He never should have been taken out of the cruiserweight division. You, he's just too small when you put him up against heavyweights in this era. And this is not 2000, 2001 era Benoit where he like figures out his personality. Like he's yeah. not there yet. He has none. He is not that far away from having cut the worst promo <laughs> in the history of pro wrestling. Vader won the All Japan Triple Crown. Yeah, he did. This was his uh, renaissance in Japan, where he goes oh, back. Oh, he was to, like, actually good here. Good for him. I mean, it wasn't like amazing, but he does like one big tour, and like everyone's desperate to see him because they know it's kind of the end for him. Yeah. One last time. Steve Austin made a well-received appearance on Nash Bridges. Ever watch Nash Bridges? Not even one single time. I think um, I watched this episode Austin was on. When apparently he did such a good job they were talking about making a spinoff yeah. starring him. Yeah. I mean, maybe that was just some bullshit the WWF put out there. But, like, yeah, he – I think he got – he did a few guest spots on this show. They brought him back. Between that and Bret Hart on Lonesome Dove, it was a really good time in the 90s for wrestlers appearing on random cable shows. Here's another one. Hogan filmed a cameo on Suddenly Susan. Suddenly Susan. Susan. Actually, I've seen every episode of Suddenly Susan. My mom was super into Suddenly Susan. I love that you've never seen Nash Bridges, but you've seen Suddenly Susan. What am I watching Nash Bridges for? Oh, Bret Hart had a 10-minute match on Nitro with Van Hammer. That feels like a punishment. Fucking Van Hammer. The clip that you posted on Twitter about John Madden being like, well, that was Van Hammer in the crowd. From the incredible, that's the Randy Moss Cowboys-Vikings game from Thanksgiving, I think. It's just the idea that not only does John Madden watch... John Madden, knowing who Van Hammer is, makes him even more over with me than he was before. Not only does he watch wrestling, but he watches it deep enough to know who fucking Van He's Hammer is on fan. site. He shouts out. I don't even know if I would have recognized Van Hammer. At the I time. didn't I when I saw I the clip. I wouldn't today. Yeah. Maybe at the time I would have because I did watch Saturday Night. But yeah, the fact that John Madden watches wrestling closely enough like oh i need to explain to summerall that this is van hammer the people need to know this man they were the two best announcers of all time the dynamic of john madden bringing up some dumb shit and hat summerall being like what is a van hammer exactly <laughs> is this the perfect dynamic smith for four smith with the four yard game on the play <laughs> but no pat he used smith. to wrestle hulk hogan <laughs> 
It's like the NBA, the, the Mark Jackson, Jeff Van Gundy, Mike Breen team, where Van Gundy is like, yeah, when I was seven, my mom, my grandmother looked into my eyes and told me the day I was going to die. It's haunted me ever since. And Breen's just like, Jokic with the two-pointer. <laughs> I don't think Breen even hears a word. He doesn't even get the feed into his headset. No. Come on. <laughs> it's not worth it. None of those three people are having the same conversation, and I love it about them. Mysterio and Psicosis wrestled a disastrous match in Mexico in which Mysterio came out wearing his mask and nearly set off a riot. So they put they Mysterio thought in a- They could were They're like, oh, yeah, the dumb fans down here won't know Mysterio lost his mask. Oh, boy. Not cool. Now, Mysterio's talked about this because he said that, like, he knew what was going to happen and he oh, begged them just to. As he did. But he says, like, he begged them not to make him go on this tour at all because it was built all around him, but th- before they made him take the mask off. So he's like, we can't, I can't do this. Like, you're going to get me killed. I can't. And then the, they were like, well, you can just leave the mask off. And he's like, no, I didn't lose it the right way. They'll still be mad about that. Yeah, <laughs> they kept bouncing around. They were like, oh, it could be a hair match, a mask versus hair match. The commission wasn't letting any of us fly. No, because like, you can't re-lose a mask, you dickhead. I mean, I feel like to this day, this maybe it's probably either probably over now, but I feel like for years after this, this ruined Rey Mysterio's drawing power in Mexico. I think honestly, to this day, that's still the case. Rey I mean, Mysterio- it, is, it is just such a betrayal of... The rules of Mexican wrestling, the traditions of Lucha Libre that he put the mask back on. Also, he only wrestled in Mexico for like three yeah. years before he came he was to America. Not, he, he was not a big star in Mexico. He no, was he wasn't in the main events. Ever. Like he was like he was actually a bigger star in Japan than he was in Mexico. And I don't know this about Mexican wrestling. Do they care that he's he's American, right? He grew up in America. Do they yeah, care? He's from about San that? Diego. It depends. Like, he's from a predominantly Mexican town, so I don't think people really hold yeah. it against him. But also, like, there's a certain thing where, like, people look at you and you're just like, eh, you're not, like, really Mexican. And that's not my place to judge that at all. But I've been told that that's yeah, kind of that what sense. carries with him. Yet they love Conan, who's Cuban. Well, I guess he was a heel in Mexico. Yeah, well, apparently the idea is that, like, there are people who are, like, have the vibe of Mexico, even if they're not Mexican. It's it's probably yeah, partially sure. because we've like convinced them all into one sort of race of people and called them all Mexican for so long that like that just some becomes built in. I don't fucking know. This is a discussion for another time. But no, Rey Mysterio doesn't draw in Mexico and he never will. Scott Steiner started calling himself the Big Bad Booty Daddy. What a great nickname. This is... Maybe the greatest nickname in the history of the world. Not just the wrestling big, nickname. He's also like, I'm going to be somebody's big bad booty daddy tonight. It's Which I believe is implying he's going to rape his opponent. I believe so. It, it's such it's a great nickname Steiner because era. all great nicknames are at least kind of stupid. Like, you can't have a perfectly cool nickname. That's not good. It's got to be kind of dumb. This Scott Steiner is a megastar. This is the guy. The fact that we have Steiner facing Booker T here for the TV title feels so wrong. These guys need to be in the main event. 
Look, here's who I think their next generation is. It's Booker, Steiner, Conan, Ray. Who else would you throw in there? At this point? Not the, I mean, not, it's not, to me, it's not the people people always talk about, which are like it's not Benoit, Benoit, Jericho. Jericho. And Jericho's on his way out the door anyway. If he were I, staying, different story, but he's leaving anyway. I'd say maybe Raven. Yeah. They don't think yeah, so. Ra- I mean, Raven's very unhappy, but if you used him better, he'd probably be happier. Also, I wonder if there's something in Perry here. Like, the Perry we get yeah. on this show is a star, and I don't feel like I ever see it again from him on any other night anywhere else. Yeah, here he just pulled, he's wearing like mascara here. He's really just fully embracing being a weirdo. He's wearing mascara, yellow contact leather lenses, dress. Yeah. a leather dress with straps, and the dog collar. And he looks like it's a something. fucking monster. Yeah. A house show at the Alamo Dome drew a $360,000 gate. Not that much less than the 1997 Royal Rumble. Though that probably had more people at it. They they just had less people in for free. gave half those tickets away. Yeah. In kayfabe, Glacier was broke and started selling off all his assets. His gear, his music, his snow machine, his laser lights. This is the most depressing (laughs) storyline of all. So clearly they were like, all right, well, we can't keep letting him do this super expensive entrance. It's too expensive, yeah. So what if we made a, a storyline reason why that stopped, which is that he has to sell it off. <laughs> he can't afford it. Jesus Christ. And finally, the hammer. Sting sold his half of a gym he co-owned with Lex Luger. They had been very good friends, but reportedly had a falling out after Sting told his wife what Luger had been up to on the road, and Sting's wife told Luger's wife. This got Sting massive heat backstage as it was a violation of the wrestler code. No fucking snitching. What are you doing, Sting? But he, he just told his wife, like, How I don't... fuck <laughs> do you think it's your place to tell your wife that Luger's messing around on the road? <laughs> I just love that so much. It's just like, look, if everyone started telling their wife about all the random fucking we're doing, we're all going to get divorced, so shut the oh, fuck yeah. up. No, um, trying to remember, who did... Somebody said somebody once called Nash's wife to start telling... Her like what Nash is up to on the road. Nash, Nash's wife's just like shut the fuck up. I don't want to know. See, that's why theirs is the only wrestling marriage yes. that has ever worked out. Is because she's also not a mark, and she's like, look, yeah. I, I I know what we're doing here. There's right? sacrifices you make to live a very good life. Nash, Nash is like, it was literally whoever it was. I can't think of who it was. Was it might have been Luger's wife actually, but was like, you know, Kevin's going to strip clubs on the road, right? And Nash's wife responded, yeah, he also worked at a strip club to put me through college, so I don't really care. Yeah, that's the thing is that if you meet a man and he's a bouncer at a strip club, then like maybe yeah. you're probably more equipped to deal with that situation. Yeah, 
Fucking also, Stig. Also, just the fact that Dave Meltzer published this is hilarious and insane. So not only is Sting getting heat backstage, he's getting heat from everyone on Earth. Yeah, now everyone knows he's a snitch. You wonder why he was always hanging out in the rafters by himself. I almost feel I feel probably bad wasn't for him. allowed in the locker room after this. I feel bad for him because I'm sure it was probably just like an aside to his wife. Well, his wife being like, "Hey, okay, where'd I you guys think- go?" This was them having a very serious talk trying to save their marriage, where I think he admitted to all the things he had done. And then I think part of how he was trying to justify it was he was like, well, everybody does it. You know, Lex does it, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. Which is even worse, I think, because he's just trying to take the heat off himself for all the things he did. And Sting's wife, and Sting does not work in the fucking business. Sting's wife does not work in the business, so it's not her problem. She, he calls Luger's wife and being like, hey, uh, your husband's fucking everybody in every city across Christ. America. <sighs> and I guess I get it, but... <sighs> you know what? After all those years of us thinking that Luger was going to turn on Sting, it's... Sting turned on Luger. Gra- it's deeply gratifying to know that Sting turned on Luger. <laughs> all right. So to get into the show, it's Sunday, March 14th, 1999. We're at Freedom Hall in Louisville, Kentucky. Do you think Jim Cornette went to this show? I think he at least tried to get backstage. <laughs> Looking for a job. He, God, that would have been really fun. <laughs> Bischoff would have made him clean the toilets. Oh, God, yeah. The humiliation he would have been subjected to if he came crawling back to Bischoff for a job at this point would have been amazing. The first time he pitched some Memphis bullshit to Hogan and Hogan's like, get this motherfucker out of here. Would have been worth it just to fuck with him. Uh, sell out over almost 16,000 in attendance, uh, $367,000 gate plus $98,000 in merchandise sales. Good stuff. Not bad. Uh, the buy rate is just okay. 0. 0.73 for 325,000 buys. It's down quite a bit from the 415,000 they had done the previous year for Hogan against Savage in a cage match. But it's kind of on par with what they'd been doing for their B shows in recent months. You know, that 300, three, three, between three and 350 is kind of their level for the B pay per views. And that's pretty, not a bad level. I mean, that's what uh, uh, they got to be grossing almost five million dollars on that. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, they're giving a bunch of it away to Hogan every time they put him on the show. That's for sure. But also, like, this is nothing but rehash matches for some of these matches. It's like the third time we've gotten it. Like it, nothing on this show was particularly fresh. So you're still getting five million off of this show where you really did nothing to earn it. Uh, the opening match for the Cruiserweight title, Billy Kidman against the debuting Mikey Whiprack. We got the ECW boys in, yeah. It's amazing how much ECW talent they're using at this point, given Bischoff's stated disdain for ECW. This is just like that wave that, that comes in. Just so like everybody. It's Sandman and Mikey Whiprack. Who else comes in around this time? Bam Bam. Yeah. Um, get anybody else? Um, no, maybe that's it. I might be forgetting if there's anybody else. All right. And then they send Raven back because they're just <laughs> yeah. Raven wants to go. Raven quits, yeah. Yeah. Um, really good match here. I don't feel it doesn't seem like Whipwreck lasted very long in WCW, but he looked really good here. Well, 
looks really good is a relative statement. Okay, yeah, he's he <laughs> his look is shit. He's Mikey Whipwreck. He's wearing a t-shirt and shorts and those weird. Why did CM Punk take his look from Mikey Whipwreck of all people? Those weird rap knee pads. Yeah. I don't know. It, it's just bizarre. It's like you cobbled together like five people's gear, and that was his gimmick in ECW. But it is weird that he didn't get a different one to debut in WCW, isn't it? I mean, does he? He doesn't have the physique to be showing his body off, right? No, absolutely yeah. not. But like, it, it is funny to see like this guy who looks like a slub piece of shit get 15 minutes and kind of tear the house down here. Yeah, good match here. Um. Whipwreck, this is, I think, maybe my favorite part of the match. Whipwreck did a flying clothesline from the top rope, and Kidman jumped into it. I always love when guys sell like that. Also, about from that clothesline on, Bobby Heenan just starts yelling about how much he loves Mikey Whipwreck <laughs> and that he's a big star. And I'm like, Heenan is watching this? He never watches the matches. You know, Bobby... I I'm not a big fan of Bobby Heenan's com- commentary in WCW because I just think he didn't care at all. But there were times where, yeah, he would just watch the match and somebody would genuinely impress him. And it would actually put that person over a lot because yeah. Bobby actually gave a shit enough to put you over. Yeah, he not being a dickhead for once would get you over. Uh, Kidman hit a pedigree here. Okay, so... Two people on this show do pedigrees, well, and it's weird Stevie, as shit. I think Stevie Ray was using the slapjack before Triple H was. Triple H probably stole it from Stevie Ray. Right. But Billy Kidman does a sit-out pedigree in the yeah. match right before Stevie Ray's. And I'm like, what the fuck are you doing, man? This is just the kind of thing. that's the, This is the lack of quality control WCW had, that there's just no – like. I feel like this is a good rule in wrestling that if somebody uses a move as a finisher, you can't be move, using it as a non-finisher. That's fair, right? Yeah. I mean, I, I'm not a, a huge thing about stealing finishers and stuff like that, but you can't steal someone's fi- – you couldn't use the go to sleep and then use it as like a setup to a moonsault. Like, that's bullshit. Don't do that. Yeah. Uh, Kidman gets the win with the shooting star press after about 15 minutes. Really good opener. Yeah, that was really good. I liked it a lot. Poor Mikey. Was he allowed to do the... The whippersnapper? Yeah, because, like, that's Disco's dis- doing Disco's finisher. Here. I don't know. I don't know. I don't remember enough about his run. I would have made Disco change that shit. Like, look, man, <laughs> your stunner sucks, and his is great, so you're not doing that anymore. Then we've got a Harlem Street fight. It's Stevie Ray against Vincent, who's now being called Vince, to make it even more on the nose, who he's supposed to be mocking. Steve, why are we having a match between Stevie Ray and Vincent? To determine leadership of the NWO black and white. The fact that they, like, openly have a group of guys who are in the NWO, but that the actual NWO won't associate with is fucking wild. They're having this argument about who's the leader of it, which, by the way, I think it's only these two dudes and then Brian Adams. So Brian Adams gets no say, I guess. And then they keep going to Hogan and being like, Hogan, who's in charge? And he's like, I don't give a shit. I did like the presentation here where they did a promo package before the match. This is something they would remember. It feels like when we would do the WCW shows from like 96, 97, 98, they would never have any video packages explaining what the issue was. And it was really nice that they did this here. 
Yeah, that would always drive me crazy because, like, I would literally not until we did the podcast figure out what the fuck I had been watching. Yeah. Uh, they fight up into the stands and the crowd actually gets kind of into this. This was watchable. This didn't suck. I don't know which of them had the idea of like, look, if we just have a match, they're going to shit on it. We got to do some like brawling shit. And they do. And it's fine. Yeah. Finish comes when Horace runs in and gives Stevie his slapjack. He hits Vince with the slapjack, the weapon, and then hits him with the slapjack, the move to finish him. The end of this match features the word slapjack said on commentary at least 25 times. I didn't realize until I rewatched that slapjack is the name of Stevie's finishing move because they just kept saying slapjack. I also swear they went back and forth between calling it the slapjack and the blackjack and also sometimes confused the weapon, whether it was called a slapjack or a blackjack. That's racist. Blackjack is a way better name. Um, the weapon is a slapjack. What the fuck is a slapjack? I don't know. I think it's like a loaded leather club thingy. Maybe like it's just, some kind of BDSM weapon. I don't can know. Can we not just have brass knuckles in this company? Like, what are we doing? What is a slapjack weapon? A batted weapon? I don't know. It's leather and it's loaded and I guess it'd knock you out. Leather and it's loaded and it'd knock you out like Klondike it's, Bill on a Saturday night. <laughs> it's funny. On Google, some of the things call it a slapjack and some call it a blackjack. <laughs> I don't know, man. All right. Uh, Mark Madden interviews Lismar or Jericho backstage. Madden says Jericho's never been in, in a dog collar match. Apparently he didn't watch Nitro on Monday because Jericho had a dog collar match with Liz Mark Jr. on the Nitro before this. That's very believable because fuck Mark, Mark Madden, Mark. you're paid by this company and you can't watch the shows. God, he's... I did like Jericho's line of, I've never been in a dog collar match, but I'm the sultan of dog collar matches because how hard can they be? <laughs> Jericho doesn't remember he was just in a dog collar match on Monday. Maybe they had, I don't, yeah, I don't know. <laughs> Probably not. Um, then we've got Kevin Nash against Rey Mysterio. Nash is introduced as being from Scottsdale, Arizona. I assume he was living there at the time, but we all know he grew up in Detroit, and that's where he's always otherwise been introduced from. Only baby faces are from Detroit, brother. <laughs> yeah, like the Canada thing in the Ruby F in the 2000s. That's right. If you're from Canada, actually, you're from Tampa Bay, Florida. Uh, it, Ray got an insane pop here when he hit Nash with the Bronco Buster. Look, this Ray's getting pops all the way through this thing yeah. to such an extent that like his entrance gets a huge pop. Everyone's like dancing around to his music and Ray gets like 90 percent of this match. Ray yeah. beats his ass. Yeah. He goes for a moonsault, but Nash catches him. Ray slips out. He hits the ropes, but Luger trips him. Nash then hits a big boot and a jackknife for the pin. It's funny. This is totally random, but I was watching a match from one of these nitros, and Ray ran the ropes, and he literally hit his head and knocked himself down. Because if you notice, when he hits the ropes, he always kind of leans back when he does it, because his head is the exact same height as the top rope. 
That's why he always hits the second rope in yeah. WWE is because he learned a way to do it. He's the guy who has and those WWE ropes, those aren't ropes. Those are steel cables. Those things hurt if you hit him like that. Yep. Uh, Nash hits him with the jackknife and pins him. Yeah. Like you said, Ray's not going to beat Nash twice. It is a shame because beating Luger could have been like really great for his career. It really could have. But the idea that he beats Nash once and then Nash has to cheat to beat him a second time, that's that's protecting Ray. Like Ray looks like a star here. And then we've got a martial arts challenge as Jerry Flynn takes on Ernest Miller and Sonny Ono. For some reason, there always had to be a martial arts challenge at Uncensored. The original had Haku versus Jim Duggan in a martial it, arts. Is, is it the most unexpected thing in the world that they didn't just make a martial arts belt or like get the old like Enoki martial arts shocked. belt? shocked Bischoff never introduced a martial arts championship just so he could fucking win it just like yeah he's better than any of these guys just present himself with it and keep it forever I think Jerry I think Jerry Flynn is like a legit karate guy I think he was actually a black belt Ernest Miller had some karate background but I think he might literally have been Bischoff's kids karate instructor here's the fabulous thing about the world in the 90s is that there were just weird Caucasian karate experts just wandering the streets of this fair country. Um, this is before everyone in the world realized that Brazilian jiu-jitsu was a billion times better in every conceivable way and everything just melded into jiu-jitsu. Okay. Like a lot of suburban white kids in the 90s, I did karate as a kid. Uh-huh. My instructor looked just like Eric Bischoff. No shit. Hundred percent, like they could have been brothers. If you were a little, if you were like fifteen years older, it probably could have been Eric Bischoff. <laughs> yeah, I was not a good martial artist, to be clear. Unfortunately, I, I find that easy to believe, but that's okay because I most don't have, I don't have the flexibility in my legs to throw the kicks. But here's the thing, too, is that like karate literally lends itself to incredibly stoic, quiet men yeah. who don't show emotions. That's what karate teaches you to do. <laughs> so the idea we were going to get a bunch of karate guys and put them in pro wrestling and it was just going to work out. I don't know where they got that idea from. I think Ernest Miller with more seasoning could have been a star. Like he's oh, got, yeah. he's got the charisma. He's a great athlete. I just don't think he had the seasoning to be on TV at this point. No, and like what? How long did he train for? Because I don't think he. Uh... And like he was. Yeah, he okay. It's on Wikipedia that he was Garrett Bischoff's karate instructor, and Bischoff asked him to become a pro wrestler. And I think he might literally have only had a few months of training. That sounds right. He's not the worst ever to no. have that much. He, and he also just started too late in life, right? Like, he's like an older guy to be starting. How old is he here? He's probably mid-30s would be my guess. Yeah, born 64, so he was 35 here. Yeah, so, like, you're and if, unless you're, like, Paige and you're going to work at it 24 hours a day, you're probably not going to become a top-flight wrestler, and that's just is what it is. But, like, yeah. he, he at least had the personality down. I got no problems with Ernest the Cat Miller. He got really over in 2000 as the commissioner. Yeah. 
Somebody call my mama is one of the best catchphrases in wrestling history. The fact that that music won't die and it just keeps getting recycled for <laughs> different people forever. Music. That's what Vince likes to groove to. Put some sax in it. It'll be the greatest jam of all time. Oh, man. Uh, this is an uninspiring six-minute match. Flynn gets to pin Ono. Should note, Flynn got his ponytail cut off in the way in here to get some heat. That was Kevin Sullivan's contribution to the show. So, yeah. So, not only do we now have two white karate men with flat tops in this company. (laughs) Also, like, the premise of this match is supposed to be Flynn wants Sonny Ono in, so he keeps, like, trying to do, like, tricks and stuff to get Ernest the Cat Miller to tag him in, and then he's supposed to beat Sonny Ono once he's in. But they keep fucking that up, and, like, they, like, kind of, like, halfway do it so many times that it doesn't get a pop at the end because they just mess it up. Okay. Next up, we get what I thought was the match of the night. Bam Bam Bigelow versus Raven versus Hardcore Hack in a triple threat match. This kicked ass. This is a fucking mess, and I mean that in the best way possible. Man, this WCW Hardcore division was ludicrously entertaining for these first couple months. I mean, listen to those three names I just rattled off. These are three former ECW world champions. These are guys who can go, and they, man, especially Sandman is wrestling like he's got something to prove here. Sandman looks fantastic. It does. Uh, um, Raven... Looks like you wouldn't be able to tell that he doesn't give a shit because he's really, like, kicking ass in this match. Bam Bam looks like he does not give an ounce of a shit no. here. Bam Bam. I don't know what it was. He seemed to come into W's. I mean, it's probably just he knew he was on the wrong side of the backstage politics here and it wasn't going to work out for him. But he just did not seem to have the fire he had in ECW here. It's just funny because, like, I don't even think it's politics that are holding him back, per se. It's just that, like, what this are you supposed to do with him? Yeah. I, just being in the hardcore division here, I thought, was a perfectly fine use of them. Absolutely. They probably should have introduced the hardcore title here. I don't, It's later in the year they finally get one. But this was, I think that, that this adds a good variety to the shows. Yeah, it honestly probably just should have been this match for that yeah. belt. This uh, whoever wins this match is definitely the king of hardcore in this company. Uh, there's lots of weapons here. They have trash cans. They have cookie sheets. They have a shovel. They have a box fan, an oar, an ironing board, a broom. Sandman breaks out barbed wire, which I love that they're using barbed wire in the mid card. That's something they never did in the WWF. Like that he just wears it all the time. I just yes. love that. Uh, Sandman does a Frankensteiner off the top rope, the Heineken Rana. So at one point his shirt comes up because he's got his like big ass gut under it. And like it shows that like he's got like the Scott Steiner style like muscles layered over his gut. It's like, oh, he's in incredible shape, actually. Yep. Sandman trained hard for this. It's so funny how somehow... Sandman in ECW was the biggest degenerate in the world, but Sandman in WWE and WCW was somehow the most professional guy in the world. Same uh, in WWE, too, where like yeah. Vince was like, I can't believe, like, he would literally be like, everyone should be more like Sandman, while he's just sitting over there, like, quietly reading the paper. Reading his Wall Street Journal, not bothering anybody. 
He'd be the first one in the building. He'd read everyone else's segments so he could help them with them. Like, just like literally. strange. It feels like they were going to give him a push and he just quit. I never heard what the story was. I'm not really sure about that. They should have just, if they had just made him Vince's son. We go back (laughs) to this all the time. Every single time we talk about the Sandman, we have to talk about the fact that he should have been Vince's son. Can you just imagine what that would have been like if it had turned out that, like, Vince's son had to make his name on the Northwest Indies with barbed wire and shit? Uh, Bigelow powerbombs Sandman onto a table and then hits him with a splash through it. At this point, Raven's quote-unquote sister chastity shows up. She gives Raven duct tape. He uses it to tape Sandman's hands behind his back so he can hit him with unprotected chair shots. Thankfully, this is not as bad as the Rock McFoley Royal Rumble spot where they did this. Agreed. Because um, so Raven actually Raven doesn't you know, swing that chair like it's a baseball bat the way Rock did. Do they establish on TV what this chastity thing is all about? I don't... I feel like I missed something here, which is entirely possible. I may have not caught a segment where they introduced her, but apparently she's Raven. I thought she was Raven's girlfriend, but she's his sister. Yes. Okay. I was just making sure because I didn't see anything about it, but I could have missed something. I just didn't wanted to be sure about that. Bam Bam hits greetings from Asbury Park, but he doesn't cover. He sets Raven up on a table, but Raven rolls off. Chastity sprays him with a fire extinguisher and he falls back through the table. Then she turns on Raven and sprays him with the fire extinguisher and headbutts him right in the nads. And then Sandman pins him and gets the win and this, you know, walks out with Chastity. Good for him. Yep. This is like a mega nut shot. Like she like fucking Chris Benoit diving headbutts him right in the nuts. That's a pretty good one. And fucking Sandman always slays it with the ladies. Always has somebody. Yeah. All right, next up, we've got a Lumberjack match for the WWE Tag Titles. Kurt Hennig and Barry Windham against Chris Benoit and Dean Malenko. Uh, The way this works is the Lumberjacks all have straps. Uh, We've got Ming, Hugh Morris, Prince Iakea, Kendall Windham, Bobby Duncan Jr., Kenny Chaos, Norman Smiley, and Chris Adams. And then Arn Anderson comes down and takes Adams' place. That is one of the great moments I've ever yeah. seen is when Chris Adams is just like, oh, yeah, here you go, Arn. Here's my yeah. spot. Here's the belt. Uh, Benoit gets worked over for a while. He manages to tag in Malenko. Malenko gets Hennig in the cloverleaf, but Wyndham breaks it up. Malenko gets worked over. He eventually manages to tag in Benoit. A huge brawl breaks out and distracts the referee. Arn jumps in the ring, nails Hennig with a tire iron, and Benoit hits the diving headbutt and pins him, and Benoit wins his first ever title in WCW, which is pretty crazy. He's been here for ages, it feels like. Been here for three and a half years, going four years, and they pass titles around. They have a lot of belts in this company, and they're not shy about passing them around, and he'd never won one until now. Almost like he was banging the Booker's wife. Yep. In fact, Booker points out he's a six-time television champion when he wins it later on in the show. Like, that's fucking crazy. Now... Technically, Benoit won the TV title on house shows a couple times, but they never acknowledged it on TV. Yeah. 
And then we've got the dog collar match. Chris Jericho versus Saturn. Uh, you win this one by pinfall or submission, not by touching the corners. I think that's the best rules for a strap yes, match. Yes, it's I, so I much think better. touching the corners is cheesy. There's only one way for the touching the corners finish yeah, to be. Same <laughs> same finish always, where the baby face touches it behind the heels back. Or vice versa. Like, it only ever ends the same way. Heenan says he's never seen a dog collar match. I really wish Shivani would have called him out for not having watched the original Starcade. Or, for example, literally the last match Jericho had. <laughs> yeah. Jericho versus Leesmark Jr., the classic dog collar match from Nitro. Wait, isn't Heenan on the original Starcade? Um, no, he was in the AWA at that oh, point. Oh, okay. But there was AWA crossover with that show, but I don't think Heenan was there. All right, fair enough. Yeah, and like I, to be fair, he could do like he didn't if he didn't, if he didn't live in the South. You could only get it by going to the movie theaters in the South. It wasn't an actual pay per view, and it wasn't like you could rent the DVD or whatever that didn't exist. So I guess I shouldn't be ripping on Heenan for not having seen that match. Yeah, but also Junkyard Dog did this like 50 times, too. Like, I feel like yeah, he didn't see the dog. Was in. I don't know. They do this shit in the AWA. I don't think they did it in the WWF. I, I'm trying to imagine someone pitching the dog collar to Vern and him being like, well, how are you supposed to grapple? Since we're on the subject of dog collar matches, you've probably seen the report that, quote unquote, Someone suggested that Cody versus Brock Lesnar should be a dog collar match. Yeah, someone named Modi Bodes suggested yeah. a dog collar Broke match. Honestly, on Twitter, Cody literally sitting there in the booking meeting wearing a dog collar, being like, hey, uh, a lot of people are saying maybe it should be a dog collar match. Literally, like, Brock Lesnar, like, dozes off in the locker room when he wakes up with a dog collar around his neck. Like, God damn it, Cody, we're not doing Again? it. Uh, Triple H is probably into that shit, too. Them, them just stalking Brock through the hallways. No, no, at least once, like, Cody or Triple H just texted the other, like, hey, come over to my hotel room. And they watched Piper versus Valentine from the first Starcade together. Oh, you fucking know it. Like, those two... It's a shame that, like, they're not truly in control of everything anymore, but, like... It would be some really weird... Like, there would be a lot of belt whipping, a lot of... <laughs> I don't, what, what would there be a lot of? A lot of, like, uh, oh, my tires got slashed, so I couldn't make it to the arena, but I know, you know, it was Brock Lesnar who did that. Was like, they would just repeat every Jim Crockett storyline. Cody would get fired and come back under a mask. Yeah. The idea... That we could have gotten, we could get a promo where Cody Rhodes steps outside of a cabin and says, "Well, a bunkhouse <laughs> brawl is when get, you gotta go outside in your jeans." They would definitely bring have bring back the bunkhouse stampede. That would you, happen. You gotta bring back the bunkhouse stampede. How else are men on the prairie supposed to settle their issues? Maybe that. Maybe Cody versus Brock at SummerSlam will be a bunkhouse brawl. Dude, I'm telling you this right now. <laughs> Right in the heart of Detroit. Steve and I are going to SummerSlam, and if there's a bunkhouse brawl at that fucking match, you're going to hear our high-pitched screams. Better be the main event. Oh, man. Oh, man. That would still be a better promo than when Cody started rapping California Love. I agree. Has anyone less credibly rapped anything 
outside the of like a mass man in the world. PN News, maybe. Like, you imagine Cody Rhodes, like, listening to Tupac, like, quietly nodding his head and being like, yes, that is excellent music. Yeah. Uh, they have a pretty good match here. They do most of the typical chain, you know, chain strap spots. You got the whipping, the choking, the trip, the crotch, and uh, Jericho gets Saturn in the lion tamer, but Saturn manages to wrap the chain around his neck and choke him out to force him to break the hold. That was, that was cool. a great move. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then Saturn pins him with the Death Valley driver. This is Jericho's last WCW pay-per-view match. Is it really? Yeah, I mean, he's not around for very much. His contract's about to expire, and he's going to leave for the WWF. I guess that makes sense. It's tough to the WWF in August. I think he probably signed a few weeks. I mean, I don't know when his contract actually runs out, but at some point here they just stop using him because they know he's leaving. It's interesting because, like, in his book and, like, the way that it's always explained, he's miserable and he wants out and he hates this and he's not going anywhere. A, I think this has been a good run. I mean, even these last couple months, they're not as good as 98, but this has been a good program with well, yeah. Saturn. More Most importantly, this has been a heavyweight program with Saturn. Yeah. Like, Jericho's now at about, like, U.S. title level, right? Like, I think, honestly, if he had stayed around till 2000, he would have gotten a crack at the main event for sure. Oh, yeah. As the, <laughs> if the main event's going to get real thin here, he's better than Jeff Jarrett. He would have been a better world champion than Jeff Jarrett. Yeah, he just would have been around and able to cut a promo. Like, it's just fascinating to wonder, like, if he hadn't been impatient, what could have been? I feel like a lot of guys jump off the boat when they really probably I mean, should have stayed on it. He's better. I mean, I'm sure he made more money in the WWF than Bischoff was going to offer him. Though that first year in the WWF where everyone hates him and thinks that he sucks, <laughs> he I bet you he, he almost got, stayed. He almost got fired, at which point, what would he have done? He would have had to go to Japan. Oh, man. And that was a rotten time to go yeah. to Japan. They would have been like, hey, welcome back to ice. New Japan, kid. You ready to do some shoot fighting? Next up. TV title, Scott Steiner defends against Booker T. Steiner has Buff Bagwell backing him up. Um, you know, the story they're telling is Steiner struggles with Booker's athleticism, but he can overwhelm him with his power. Booker does a crossbody from the top rope where he kind of rotates, and I swear to God for a second I thought he was going to do a moonsault. Like, he may as well have – the things Booker's doing inside of this ring that can't physically fit his body in it make no Same. sense. Like, you don't realize how small this ring is until Booker's in there, and he can literally jump from one end of it out the other side. He's not that tall. He's probably 6'2 or 6'3, but his legs are so long. And he's so fast, and he can jump yeah. so far. He just, when he does that sidekick, he just kind of floats all the way across the ring. I do want to point out, too, like they do this great thing on the way in where like Tony Schiavone points out that Steiner isn't doing any of his cocky shit. He's not grabbing a woman out of the crowd. He's not. He's just like no scared. Hooch, no hooches tonight. Like he's intimidated by Booker T. Yeah. That's something you could have built on to create a feud that lasts for years. I loved where Booker went for the Harlem sidekick and Steiner ducked it, but then Booker's leg was so high, it just went over the referee's head, too. <laughs> just showing off how flexible he is. It's le like his foot is literally like a foot over the top rope at that point. It doesn't. WCW Booker T is something else, man. Uh, Booker goes 
up to the top for the missile drop kick, but Bagwell crotches him and Steiner superplex and superplexes him. Bagwell then gets in the ring with a chair, accidentally hits Steiner with it. Booker covers Steiner and gets the pin. Uh, this is yeah, like it's and he I think he calls himself the sixth six time champion, which is counting the times he traded the title with Benoit on house shows. But still, like it, it's so funny that like by the time he leaves, Booker's won like twenty one titles in this company, oh, and Benoit yeah. wins two. <laughs> Five time world champion, like eleven time tag champ, six time TV champ. I'm sure he got the U.S. title a couple times too. Yeah, got every belt he could win. You can't say that the company didn't see him as someone to push. They just no, didn't they push just him took, hard they enough. Just took, they took too long to do it. And one thing I'm curious about is like, what happens to him this season? Because he must get hurt. Because I don't, I remember, I don't remember him doing anything in the back half of '99. He must have another injury. Yeah, the trajectory he's on, you would imagine he'd be fighting NWO guys by Bash at the Beach. So like, yeah. something has to happen to stop that. Uh, they do another promo on the construction of the steel cage. Forgot to mention this, but they've been doing these promos all night, showing the cage being built. I absolutely love these. Absolutely. They have this great sound effect. It's just like zap, zap, zap. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I just, I'm such a, I like, did the, they did this with war, the original war games. They did this with Hell in a Cell. They did this with the Elimination Chamber. I love, though, they're building the cage, this monstrosity twisted steel it's going to tear their flesh apart love that we go to buffer he's in the ring he runs through all the stipulations for the match if flair wins he will not only be the world heavyweight champion he'll also be wcw president for life if he loses he can never wrestle in wcw again and he does not say that it's a first blood match that comes in a second. And here's the thing. That may have just been, well, no. The way Flair says it, he's not saying there's a blood match. He's talking, so I'll, I'll talk about it in a second. But it, it's they act like it had been announced before this. This was a blood match, but I don't think it was. Yeah, I don't think, I couldn't make heads or tails of this. I, the implication is just that, like, hey, I don't want Hogan getting out of this over some small bullshit. We're going to beat the shit out of each other. You let us do it. Okay, got it what winds up happening doesn't really square with any of this. Flair walks first. He is wearing a beautiful red and gold robe. This is one of my favorites. He's clearly like, let me dig out the, the best one robe. Yeah. for the last world championship I'll ever win. So he thinks. Yeah. Turned 50 years old a few weeks before this. As Buffer says, tonight he fights not just for the world title, not just for glory, but for his career and his legacy. Yep. He's either going to beat Hogan and be the world champion for the 14th time, or he's going home forever. Flair gets on the mic. He instructs referee Charles Robinson that the match shouldn't be stopped for a trickle of blood. Not going to stop this because somebody gets a scratch or somebody gets their lip busted. Like, we need somebody busted wide open here. Which, okay, this does clarify, it's a first blood match. And he specifically says, this is at your discretion as the referee. You are going to make the call to stop the match. Now, it seems pretty clear since this is Charles Robinson we're talking about. 
that this is a screw job being planned. But it's worth this mentioning. Is the fir- this is the first time they've done this. But I do think Shivani talked a lot on commentary about Charles Robinson idolizing Ric Flair. So I think they did a good job establishing that. But I will say, too, like, there's nothing in this promo that is inherently heelish on Flair's part. Like, this is He does what, tell one guy to shut up. Yeah, that is true. But, like, in terms of what he tells Robinson, he's not telling him to do a screw job. He's just like, hey, we're going to beat the shit out of each other. Don't stop it until you think it needs to be stopped. Yeah. Hogan walks second to the Wolfpack music, once again wearing the white weight belt and the white boots. Looks awesome. Yeah. It'll never be right listening to come out to the Wolfpack music, but aside from that... I assume he was actually coming out to the Wolfpack music and not Voodoo Child at this point. But of course, the dub over Voodoo Child on the network. But right. this the crowd doesn't sound weird and distorted here. So I think he was actually actually coming out to the Wolfpack theme. Yep. Uh, then they lower the cage. I love the presentation here. They drop the lights. They play scary music. It feels apocalyptic. And it's just great to watch, like, Hogan and Flair, like, looking up at the cage as it comes down. So, like, they seem small. Like, that's cool. So this cage is just a standard wrestling cage. It covers the ring. You can't go. There's not room to go out to the floor. Uh, There's no doors. There's barbed wire at the top to keep the wrestlers in and keep everybody else out. To me, this is what a steel cage match should be. I hate the escape stipulation. I think these cages, either they should have barbed wire at the top or they should have roofs on them. Like a steel cage match should be where we go to settle this one-on-one with no interference. I'm going to hit you with a hot take, Steve. I have only liked two cage matches ever where the stipulation was that you had to escape. Are you ready for Ooh, them? Um, Bret Hart versus Owen Hart. That's the first one. That one's awesome. I, I'm trying to even think of another one that was good with the escape. Batista versus Kali in the Punjabi prison, baby. Oh, oh yeah, that's a different thing. But, but yeah, still, that was but good. that's an escape stipulation. But any yeah. other time it's ever been done, I did not care for it. It just it's it's just it was invented to get out of guys having to be pinned. It to me that's transparent. Yes. But like literally the point of a cage match, the thing that made made it a cage match is the idea that with no interference and these guys couldn't leave until somebody died, you were promised a bloodbath. Yeah. So when people can just escape to get out of it, it ruins the premise. Now, the other thing that worked, the Bruno Cage matches where he would just pummel his opponent until they were unconscious and then walk out the door. That was okay too, but I still think they should just lock the door and have it end by pinfall or submission. Yep. Um, the crowd is split early. A lot of Hogan chants. Hogan controls the tempo tempo, and he wears down Flair. Hogan throws Flair into the cage and he blades. He's busted wide open. That should win Hogan the match, but Robinson pretends not to see it. And he's like looking directly in his face and is yeah. like, huh, well, that's weird. Go, can't see it. But Hogan is not 
upset by this at all. Like, feels like Hogan should be yelling at Charles. Or like, seems like he should be yelling at the referee, like, look, he's bleeding. I win. Right. After a few right? minutes, he does jump up and like go grab Charles Robinson, but then he just goes right back to the match. Like, it's just like, well, okay. Okay. Flair gets his trunks pulled down so we can all see his bare ass. Great. Didn't need to see that. Hogan pulls down some of the barbed wire and uses it to gash Flair's head open. He whips him with the belt. Man, this belt, the belt spot is so over. Yeah, it is. People go wild when he pulls the belt off. Uh, Crowds chant for Hogan at this point. He hits a big boot, the leg drop. He covers, but Robinson correctly doesn't count. There's no pinfalls in this match. So now Hogan starts yelling at Robinson that Flair is bleeding. And he gets like super mad about like, what do you mean if pinfalls don't count? I mean, I I guess he probably wasn't listening to the stipulation either, which is fair. Maybe the stipulation, and they didn't explain it well, was you can only pin them after you've made them bleed. Which would make a ton of sense, to be honest. Did I just solve this? That does kind of fix the issue. I mean, first blood matches, not super dramatic to begin with, because there's no, it's just like, oh, he's bleeding, the match is over. But if you did blood it Blood so and then pin is interesting. I actually kind of like that. Yeah, it's an idea. Flair pulls something out of his trunks, hits Hogan with the loaded fist, Puts Hogan into the cage and Hogan blades. Why doesn't Robinson stop the match now? Yeah, if it's a screw job and that's the whole premise of this match, then the second he blades, and honestly, what you should have done is just had Flair like rub some of his blood oh, yeah. on Hogan's face. That's like the old, old time screw job finish for a blood match. Is that, yeah, the heel rubs the blood on the face's face and then covers up his face, and the referee stops the match. But instead, okay, now Hogan's actively bleeding. Okay, yeah. so we can stop now, except that we don't. <laughs> nope, we just keep going. Uh, David Flair and Tori come down the aisle. Flair yells at David and gyrates in Tori's direction, which crab pops for. Yeah, it does. Flair covers Hogan. Robinson counts. Hogan powers out, and he starts to hulk up. Jesus Christ, they're actually doing the double turn. Here's the thing, like, two months from now, if he starts hulking up, that totally makes sense. But there's got to be something in between, like, dastardly Hollywood and Red and Yellow Hogan. And he just transitions directly to Red and Yellow. If you wanted Hogan to be a babyface, he should have just come back on that January 4th night yes. right, with the Georgia Dome as a face. Like, he could have just saved Goldberg, and he would have been massively over as a baby face then. Everything about this is so easily fixed if you just do it there. Instead, they made him the biggest heel in the world, and now two months later he's hulking up because Flair wanted to be a heel when he talked Hogan into a double turn. So... I mean, I'm not even sure it's the stupidest thing in the world, though it definitely derails everything they've been doing the last couple of months. It sure does. Bischoff ends up turning face. Like it's, it's literally the entire company ends up upside down off this. Yep. GP ends up turning heel for no reason. It's bizarre. Uh. Um, 
Uh, Hogan hits the big boot in the leg drop. Robinson very slowly counts. Why is he counting? Great Flair question. Kicks out. <laughs> what the fuck is going on here? Like at this point, like the crowd is silent because they have no confused. idea how to react to any of this. It's not even like what people always complain about is that Flair won the first blood match by pinfall. I don't mind that because it was a screw job with a crooked referee. Right. I mind all the logical, the internal inconsistencies here of why Robinson is counting a pin for Hogan and why he didn't just stop the match when Flair made Hogan bleed. Agreed. Like Hogan should not have bled. That actually solves all the logical problems with this match. I'm actually 100% fine with that. And like, I I went into this being like all of the other narratives that we've suffered through throughout this season have been disproven. So I was like, actually, maybe this match will make total sense. It no. won't be the clusterfuck everyone says it is. But no, it doesn't. Because this company never explains its main events. And this is maybe the most confusing one ever. But yeah. if they had just clearly explained that and then it played out this same way, I think it's a good match. <sighs> Flair suplexes Hogan. Hogan stands straight up and Flair begs off. Now they are firmly in their proper roles. Yep. Flair at this point is just so happy. Like, yes, finally. Robinson gets bumped. Flair nutshots Hogan. Arn runs down. He beats up David. Tori jumps up on Arn's back and he throws her off. He then hands Flair a tire iron through the cage. Flair knocks Hogan out with the tire iron. Flair puts Hogan in the figure four, and Robinson makes a fast three count. Flair wins the title. The crowd actually pops for the finish. A confusing and messy match. I thought both guys did a good job working their roles, given the circumstances. I really, truly think that this should have been not the end of the destination to the double term, but maybe like the beginning of it. Like Flair does some heel of shit here. Maybe he cheats to win. I don't know. But like the fans are going to cheer this because Ric Flair has been a babyface for ages and he's winning the world title. And that's awesome. So like, I really think that like the heel turn is something you can explore more on nitro. And then later on, it just felt kind of out of nowhere to just be doing it in the middle of the match here. Yeah, I mean, this was all very messy. I don't like the direction they're going. I don't think Flair should be turning heel at this point. I don't think Hogan should be turning babyface. But I think Flair wanted to be a heel. I think some panic is setting in with how much they're getting smoked in the ratings. And, you know, the card in the deck they've got to play is let's turn Hogan babyface and maybe that can turn things around. And they're not crazy to try it. It just feels wrong to be doing it after like all the shit Hogan did the last couple months. I'm going to say something that's going to feel like sacrilege to come out of my mouth, but I'm mad at this because I feel like they've ruined the finger poke. Like, what you got from that was genuine heat, like a stable of heels who had genuine heel heat from the fans for betraying them and a clear storyline where Goldberg was going to go after them. 
Now we've confused that storyline so ridiculously that how are we supposed to ever get back to Goldberg? It doesn't make sense. Like, I feel like they should have stayed more true to the finger poke even. <sighs> so that's a wrap for Uncensored 99. Um, I don't know. I didn't hate it. Like, I don't. If you ordered this show, you know, try to put yourself in the shoes of a 1999 wrestling fan. If you paid 30 bucks for this wrestling show, you got three title changes, including a world title change, some really entertaining matches, and a big angle in the main event. This still feels like it at least resembles classic WCW. It's not as good, but it's still hitting a lot of the same notes. This is the first show we've watched this season that I didn't really care for. But that's mostly because I've mostly only been watching Nitros. We've only covered like two pay-per-views so far. And like it wasn't horrible. Like I'm still excited to go and watch the Nitro from the night after and follow the rest of the story. But I can I can feel and maybe this is how you felt when we were watching TNA and you got to that point. Like I can feel the fun <laughs> starting to drain. It's common. Yeah, yeah, like we're gonna hit the iceberg. Like everybody says, they hit the iceberg back with the finger poke of doom. I don't think that was. I don't think WCW really had an iceberg moment. I think it was more akin to the frog being boiled in water, where the water because the water warmed up so slowly, you didn't even notice. It just feels like they've been. They're starting to take on some water, but everything's still okay. And the shit's really gonna hit the fan after Spring Stampede. I'm looking forward to that because next yeah. time Spring Stampede is actually my memory is this is an excellent show. It's really the last good WCW show is my memory of it. I love. OK, so some things that we get on this Steiner versus Booker T for the rematch, but this time for the U.S. title. So it makes way more sense. <laughs> yeah. Like what? Like what happened? Is Booker still the TV champion? I don't know. Has he lost it already? We'll find out. But yeah, Scott Hall has vacated the U.S. title because somebody backed over his foot when he was face down in a parking lot outside a bar. Yep. Sounds good. Uh, let's see. We got a Goldberg versus Nash. We finally get the rematch from Stark five months later. <laughs> yeah. And Kevin Nash does a leapfrog. A leapfrog? Yeah. I got to see this shit now. But you know what? There's one thing on this show that everyone talks about that is the thing that matters the most. And that is the pay-per-view debut of Blitzkrieg. Blitzkrieg! I loved Blitzkrieg. I thought that guy was the next Rey Mysterio. The man, the myth, the legend who only lasts for a year in the business and then retires immediately. And becomes like an IT guy or something. Yes, an avatar for all that we lost. I think the wrestling just wasn't for him. But he was really good at it. Yeah. Oh, man. Yeah, plus we're going to get to cover some interesting stuff. Um, the Nitro goes, WCW goes north of the border for the first time. They run Nitro in Toronto with Ooh. the classic Bret Hart segment that I've put over so many times. And uh, the disastrous Nitro rebrand where they switch to uh, the logo that looks like a robot's butthole. A robot's butthole. 
Yeah. It, I'm going to tell you whose idea that was, and it's going to pop you. Oh, I'm so excited because I genuinely don't know. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, all that and more next time on the Lockcast. Thanks for listening. We'll see you again next time.